I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Rob Butler. Batting left and throwing left, Rob played 109 Major League Baseball games as an outfielder over four seasons for both your Toronto Blue Jays as well as for the Philadelphia Phillies. Although impressive enough that Rob was just the 16,328th human being on this entire planet to play in a Major League Baseball game, Even more notable is that Rob was and is the only Canadian player to have won a World Series with a Canadian team with his hometown Toronto Blue Jays in 1993. Furthermore, Rob is also the only Canadian to appear in a World Series, an Olympics, and a AAA World Series. And just when you're trying to comprehend all of that, comprehend this. Rob's younger brother, Rich, followed in his footsteps and had a major league baseball career of his very own. Thus, these two Butler brothers from Toronto achieved their dreams of not only playing in the show, but playing for their hometown Blue Jays team. Welcome, Rob Butler, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you doing? Well, that was a nice intro. Thank you very much. I've kind of forgotten all those little stats about myself (laughs) and my brother. Um... Now I'm still involved in baseball. I help with the national team. Uh, I ran a baseball facility for about 15 years. Um, I'm still coaching. I coach a peewee team in Leaside, uh, my junior team, my 22 and under boys. I'm just trying to stay involved in baseball and hopefully until the day I die. I just love it so much. And what part of town do you live in? I moved out to Oshawa. I live out by, um, I live out by the 407, which is very nice and convenient. I can get back to Toronto. Very easily, although it costs yeah. a lot of money, but I can still get back pretty quick. Good. And may I ask about family? What 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 what's the unit out there in Oshawa? So I got a little blended family here. I got we got our three kids. My wife is Sherry. Um, we've been married now five years. Um, probably the luckiest man in the world to have found Sherry. Um, she's been an amazing partner for me and someone who has really, you know, grounded me and helped me um, become more mature. Which mm-hmm. a lot of wives do for men. We you all know, need one of those. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very lucky. We got our three kids. We got our cats and our dog, and, you know, we love it out here in little Oshawa. Fantastic. Well, with your permission, Rob, let's go all the way back and get your whole story. Where were you born, and, and please describe your upbringing. Well, I was born, I was born in Toronto. I was actually born in, in East York. Um, I, grew up, I grew up loving baseball for some reason. Um, I don't know. I grew up in Ontario housing at Maine and Danforth. I was a Maine and Danforth kid, which anybody knows back in the day was um, a fun place to grow up. A lot of interesting people. And, you know, me and my brother, we, uh, we just loved sports. My parents weren't, weren't athletes really in, in any way until they started running the Toronto Marathon. But, you know, they loved sports too, but they never really signed me and Rich up for anything. I signed myself up for baseball, soccer. You know, I went over to the park, signed myself up. I mean, I had to get the 40 bucks from my mom to uh, pay the registration. But, you know, back in those days, when you're eight, nine years old, you did everything on your own, right? Yeah. So you, you grew up fast when we were in the, in the 70s and 80s. And, and where did uh, you go to school, Rob? I went to school in East York. I went to Secor, D.A. Morrison, and East York Collegiate. I am um, full-on East Yorker. Did all my sports for East York. Uh, I love representing East York. 
great group of guys. The kids I grew up with were, I mean, they were mean and lean, man. We, uh, we, we all got tennis balls for Christmas as presents and that's all we ever needed. Right. We <laughs> love to play sports and be in the schoolyards and, you know, hack it up and play burby, wall ball. Um, I'm so lucky where I grew up because I wouldn't have been a major leaguer if I didn't grow up where I did. I, I, I got to be, um, I got to be a major leader because of East Shore. Well, uh, these were certainly simpler times. I had the same memories. I'm of the same vintage as you. And it used to be go out in the morning and when the, when the dinner bell was rung or the, yeah. or the lights came on, that was time to come in. Yeah. And that was great. Because for our kids, you know, you know where your kid is every minute of the day. My parents probably did not know where me and Rich were at any time of the day. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Now, Rob, this is probably the most obvious question. If you haven't been asked this a, a million times, I'll be shocked. Why not hockey? Um, well, again, it was kind of the same thing where, you know, our parents didn't really sign us up for any sports when we were young. So a lot of the kids I went to school with were playing hockey. Um, but we, I don't know, we just never, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do when I was really young. When I was five and six when all the guys were kind of going. And plus we didn't have any money, you know, I wasn't going to be able to buy, I didn't have skates or anything. So um, it wasn't something that I'd go to my dad and say, you know, I want a hockey stick, skates, shoulder pads, you know, he'd be like, uh, no, not going to happen. You're, mm-hmm. You know, here's, I didn't even have a glove. When I signed up for baseball, I, I didn't have a glove. I had to go and I found an old glove that my mom had. My mom was a right-handed thrower. And when I went to East York to do my very first practice, I was using my mom's glove, which is for the wrong hand. And <laughs> my That's my, a start. I, it's funny because I was – I would switch the hand over to my, to my proper hand and throw left-handed. But of course, when I was playing, I couldn't do that. So my, my, my coach did notice that um, I was actually left-handed and probably about mm, 10 games in, he shows up with a glove for my proper hand. And I was playing, I was finally able to play left-handed. I can ditch my mom's glove. So and anyways, when Rich was probably 10, he signed up for East York Coast League. And I went to watch a game. I was 13 at the time. And I just, I just loved it. So I actually did play some East York House League hockey uh, for about three or four years. Great teammates, great friends. I mean, we were a little, we had a little East York All Star team, and we were a little bit of a goon team. I, 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 I got beat up most of my days. I never really, really instigated anything, but it was so much fun playing East York House League. I, those are some of my greatest memories. Actually, I did play. I did actually play some hockey. I could only skate forward, could not skate backwards. So that was a problem for me ever playing any kind of high-level hockey, but I loved it. You sound like my brother. He only skated forward and uh, only knew the other end of the ice. And at the end of every season, we'd introduce him to his own goalie because he never got back into our end. But <laughs> that, that sounded what, like me. What baseball teams, Rob, did you cheer for growing up? And were there any particular Major League players that you really saw as heroes? Yeah, well, I, I loved one thing I loved was baseball, and I loved watching it on Saturday afternoons. I always watched the baseball highlights, plays of the week. Um, obviously, when the Blue Jays came in 77, I loved them. You know, I loved Bob Baylor and all the original Blue Jays. But I was definitely a Yankee fan and a Kansas City Royal fan. I loved George Brett, Willie Akins. Um, I was a uh, Milwaukee Brewers fan. I loved Ben Oglevie and Larry Heisel, who ended up being one of my coaches. Um so when I was really young, I followed baseball. I used to score keep. I bought a little score keeping book and, you know, I was eight and nine years old. I'd score keep games. And I just loved listening to the, to the games on the radio, listening to Tom Cheek and Jerry Howarth <clears throat> because they're all amazing characters to me. Yeah. You know, just like you love Bugs Bunny and Godzilla when you're a kid. I love baseball players. I love the story of Lou Gehrig and <clears throat> Babe Ruth. And I don't know. I definitely, <clears throat> I definitely was 
attracted to baseball, even though I grew up in Toronto. Yeah. And, you know, even before the Blue Jays. So um, it was just something that was always in my blood. Well, let's talk about this, Rob, how you got from East York to the major leagues. Let's break it into pieces. If you don't mind, let's take us from your earliest youth ball up to your 1990 signing as an amateur free agent. Your first baseball in East York was with who? So I signed myself up. Um, my, my, one of my school schoolyard friends that I played wall ball burby with uh, said, you know, you, you're actually pretty decent at baseball. So why don't you come play with me? So I ended up going with him and signing up. And when I was 11 years old and I was to play tight baseball in East York, he used to call it tight. And my first coach was a guy named Dave Whitfield. And, you know, some things like that, you, just, you never forget. I remember walking and seeing him, on, seeing him at the park for the first time. And when I actually played a real baseball game, I wasn't very good. Um, I mean, I was good in the park with my buddies, but man, when they were throwing a baseball at me, we had a kid named John Batten in the league. He actually ended up playing in the NHL a little bit. Uh, he was like six foot three and he was 11 and he threw so hard. He scared them. He actually scared the daylights out of me. And I was like, Oh man, this is the way baseball is going to be. I am going to not be here for very long. So, uh, there's another guy named Louis Pateropoulos and Rob Greco who ended up being one of my, one of my best friends, still is one of my best friends in this world. Um, um, made me more comfortable and it made it fun and challenging. I remember when I got my first hit off John Batten and this was probably, probably like near the end of this baseball season. I, I, I'm still surprised that I actually love baseball so much because I played host league. I didn't play a lot. I wasn't very good. I was very small. I was, I was kind of a small, fast little guy. And there's these guys like John Batten, Louis Pateropoulos around who, who to me seemed like they were a major leaguer. They threw so hard. They threw curve balls when they were 11 years old. Yeah. And it terrified the hell out of me. But for some reason, I stuck with it, and I have these stories to tell about these guys, and it's just it's amazing how it all ended up being where I just kept playing baseball. So what ends up happening is I, I actually play, I actually kept playing in East York. When I was 12, I got cut from the East York All-Star team, which was probably the greatest motivator for me, even as a little 12-year-old kid. Um, I, got, I, I initially made the team. And then the coach was playing a game um, near my house uh, down at Ted Reeve Arena uh, in East Toronto there. And he didn't tell me that the game was on. So my uncle actually called me and said, Rob, I think your team is over here playing. So I raced over the Ted Reeve Bridge, got, got to the field, and that's when he told me that I was cut. That I wasn't mm-hmm. good enough and that he'd made a mistake. And they, they actually cut me on the field as a 12-year-old kid. And, you know, <laughs> things happen on your own. You know, there's no mom and dad around to kind of advocate for me or anything. Yeah. It was like, you know, I can remember crying and saying, oh, okay, I guess I'm whatever. I guess I'm done. He said, yeah, you can go home now. So that was my first experience of um, like a little bit of adversity. Yeah. That I had to kind of like, you know, prove somebody, prove somebody wrong. So I remember, I remember going home and like practicing my wall ball and throwing the ball against the wall. I used to go over to Secord school and throw a baseball against the wall every night. And I'm pretty sure some of the people in the neighborhood did not like that. Because we, <laughs> we would be out there till after dark just pounding, pounding the cement wall with this baseball for hours. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to be on that all-star team so bad. Yeah. So when I was 13, I didn't, I didn't make the, all, I didn't make the Wee all-star team. It was still Wee then too. We were all 13 years old, but again, I didn't play very much. Um, and it's interesting because I actually hurt my arm. I tore my rotator cuff and I didn't throw left-handed for two and a half seasons and I became ambidextrous. I played right-handed for two years. So I was 15. Uh, and, why? Like you just did it or? I just did it. I went back. I went back to. I went back to um, another, the other glove, and I was throwing, and I was throwing kind of fine. So I just played center field with my right hand for two and a half years. So 
uh, what ended up happening was my dad was kind of fed up with me, not because I couldn't throw very great. I mean, nobody throws that well with their, with their wrong hand. I mean, I could throw at the home plate, whatever, but my dad put me actually on an exercise program. He built a little gym in the basement and, you know, my kind of, my, my baseball world kind of changed a little bit. I got a little bit stronger, a little bit faster. He put a little bench press and a squat rack and, you know, just said, go at it. I'm, I'm, I know nothing about weightlifting. I just remember pushing weights around and doing whatever. And, and it kind of, it definitely did help me. That was when I came back. I was able to throw again. My left arm healed. And that's when I was able to throw left hand again. So I didn't really throw left handed until I was probably 15 years old, which is interesting because, you know, not long after that, I was playing in the Olympics. Two and a half years later, I'm, a, I'm an Olympian playing center field. And, you know, people ask, how is that even possible? And I honestly think that because I rested my arm, you know, my arm was came back stronger than ever, right? Yeah. So, so then I kept playing in East York. I was lucky that I played in East York because there was guys there who were involved with the national team. Um, and it wasn't until I was probably 17 that I actually really kind of felt like I was a good baseball player. I was hitting the ball finally over the outfielders' heads, not not barely <laughs> barely out of the infield grass because I hadn't grown yet. Right? I was, I was kind of a late bloomer with my growing. I mean, I still only ended up at 5'10", but for me, I felt like I was, you know, I, I was big. I finally got big. Yeah. So I, started, I started hitting really well. I got on the junior national team when I was 18. Um, we went to South Dakota. We went to Australia. And when I, was try- when I was trying out in South Dakota, I made the Olympic team. So um, while we were down there for two weeks trying out for the junior national team, which is 18 and under, Jim Ridley and Bernie Beckman and Johnny Upham, who, you know, those guys I, I love and cherish my whole life. Um, they gave me an opportunity to be a baseball player with three days left to go into camp. They said, well, you're going to go to the Olympic team tryout, which was in Kitchener. And I was like, what? I didn't know there was Olympics. Mm. I didn't know like that. That wasn't dawning on me. that There was going to be a, like an Olympic baseball team. I was just thinking that I'm on my junior national team. That's it. Yeah. So um, I go, I go, I go to this tryout in Kitchener and you know, there's future major leaguers on this team. Matt stairs is there. Peter Hoy, Dave Wainhouse, Greg O'Halloran, Warren Sockew all these amazing baseball players from Toronto. And I was only 18 years old. And these guys have all played college or 21 and up. There's a guy there. Um, he was 40 years old. He's actually older than my dad uh, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and he was, he was on the team. Oh, Bob Bridges was his name from BC. So anyway, so there was three days left to go in the camp. And I didn't realize, I had no idea because I'm just a pimpled high school kid, trying, not even realizing I'm going to, make the Olympic team. These guys all knew I was coming. Yeah. And they wouldn't talk to me. They were huh. so mad that I was coming after, cause they'd been in training camp for three weeks. Right. So I was in that, like, like that, that stretch and doing all my things, playing catch and like nobody, nobody was for two days. No one spoke to me. No one spoke to me. So it's funny. It was actually when Wayne Gretzky got traded, Matt stares with my roommate and he goes, you probably noticed nobody's talking to you about. And I was like, I, I haven't kind of feeling that kind of, yeah, that vibe that nobody wants me here. And he was like, well, you know, they heard this cocky 18-year-old kid was coming in and he's going to play center field. And, you know, we have gone through all these tryouts. We had to do the Pan Am qualifier and you weren't there and now you're here. And, you know, people, you're going to have to really earn your stripes and, like, show these guys that you belong here because we're, they're cutting a guy to keep you here. I had no idea all this was going on. Yeah. So, of course, as soon as I hear that, my stress and anxiety kick in because now it's for real. And I absolutely play horrible. I would go play the St. Catharines Blue Jays. I dropped two balls in the outfield. I think I struck out three times. And these guys were just shaking their head at me going, this guy does not belong here. He's not ready. And so um, I thought for sure I was getting cut. I thought for sure I actually blew my chance and I wouldn't make it. As it turns out, you know, Jimmy Ridley took me aside and said, you're, gonna, you're on the team. You're going to make it. You're going to play. 
just relax. Um, and I didn't, I did not relax. I, I still played terrible. Right up, until the, right up until we got on that airplane to go to the Netherlands for our first tournament, I was awful and probably should not by um, how I played have made the team. Huh. But they'd already made their decision, luckily. Yeah. And, and so I was put on the team. We go to the Netherlands. Nobody's talking to me yet. I mean, Greg, <laughs> they're still not talking to you. Still not talking to me because I'm playing terrible. They're like, they don't want me there. And so I'm kind of on my own. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I, nobody took me aside and said, here's what we're going to do. I'd never been really away from home before. You know, I'd never been to Europe. That's for sure. I yeah. only got on my first airplane two weeks before to go to South, South Dakota. Wow. I've never traveled in my life. Um, <laughs> I mean, the most we ever did was take my dad's station wagon to Newfoundland. So <laughs> I've, never, I've never been on, never been on an airplane. So anyways, we go to the Netherlands and I can still remember Gregor Halloran saying, buddy, man, you, you got to pick it up. Like, you better do something quick. Okay. So luckily I had two home runs in the first game. In wow. So, so it was funny because they gave me the silent treatment. So I hit my first home run. I come in and nobody, you know, they give you high fives, but I got no high fives. I kind of put my helmet down and like, wow, these guys really are like disappointed that I'm on this team. So anyways, I did get a little nod from Greg. Greg, Greg O'Hallon is still a very close friend of mine. And, uh, but he was involved in the, in the silent treatment. So as I come up again, and I mean, this is hard for me to talk about myself. I really don't like talking about, you know, baseball players are trained to talk about themselves. They want to talk about other people, but you know, yeah. I, have, I have to hear. You, so, you, not only are you our only guest here, but I can already tell you, and I, I think you already know this because obviously you talk to a lot of young players. Your whole story, Rob, resiliency. The yes. word that jumps out with, with you is resiliency. But please, please continue. Yeah. You're, you're now about to hit your second home run. Yeah, I'm about to hit my second. I'm about to hit my second home run. So I actually hit a second, my second home run. That the in, in the Netherlands, they love Canada. I mean, the stadium was packed. I mean, there had to have been fifteen thousand people just jammed in this little stadium. And you know, going back to the war time, so which I which I didn't understand the history yet. Right, I'm only I'm still a young kid in high school, but the guys started talking about you know the Netherlands people. They love Holland, loves Canadians, and blah blah. So I hit my second home run. I got a standing ovation from the crowd. Wow. But again, I got silent treatment from my teammates. Ah. And, but this time it was more, it was definitely more loving because what ended up happening is they kind of sat there. Even the coaches kind of had their heads down. They weren't looking at me. I hit my second home run. And then probably just as I sat down, that's when they all jumped up and were high-fiving me and saying, you're one of us now. You're one of the boys. Way to go. You've, you've proved that you can belong here. And, you know, you're one of us now. So I kind wow. of earned my, earned my way in. I had to do it the hard way, but. You know, it was it was an amazing time after that. It definitely took that pressure and relief off of me. Um, I think some of these guys also forgot too. I was only 18 years old. I mean, I just turned 18. You know, and I I had no experience at this level, like none. Right? I only I still only been trying with the junior national team. So yeah. Um, but I do remember Matt Scares coming over and saying, "Way to go, butts! You know, you earned your stripes. You know, these guys are because Canadians are hardcore. Yeah, together playing a sport. I'm telling you, it is the if you got to get in that group of 20 guys and it's a hard nut to crack, man, these guys are so tight, you know, they, they command respect, you know, the hockey, the baseball, it's all the same. When you wear the uniform that says Canada on it, I mean, you got to show you belong there. And these guys were tough. They were tough on me and I deserved it. I needed it. I, I didn't, if they accepted me with open arms right away, I probably wouldn't have had to overcome what I had to, to, to earn that you know, that earned that kind of respect that you need to get from guys who are 21 and older and, you know, fought the old, old wars back in when they were qualifying for the Olympics and all the things they had to go through, which I wasn't a part of. 
So it was fun to actually do it that way. And, you know, it made the summer even more fun because I had a great summer. I was starting center fielder on the Olympic team. We did the world championships in Italy. I did 12 days in Italy, which was an incredible experience seeing Rome and Venice and things I never imagined I would ever see in my life. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, I used to have to steal bikes to ride a bike. I never, I, I had no money to do anything as a kid. So it was amazing to, you know, my parents tried the best they could. They did everything they could for me and my brother, you know, yeah. you know, they, if, if they had to go without, they would. So, and, you know, for us to play sports, they did, you know, and it's, you know, I'm so thankful that they, they still found a way to give us an opportunity because, you know, my mom, my mom borrowed money for me to go to, to go to the Olympics. I had, she I'd handed me two thousand dollars in in uh, uh, those travelers checks that you used to have to use back in the yeah. day. Yeah, and I was like, "Where the hell did you get this?" And she just said, "Don't worry about it. You know, what I mean, you got to eat. You got, you know, you got because you got to feed yourself when you're over there." So well, sacrifice for me. It's an incredible story. It's only the first part of your incredible story. But you know what's interesting to me when you when you go and go through this whole process and 18 years old and you're on your own and no one's really willingly accepting you. Meanwhile, if I'm not mistaken, you're still in high school. Yeah. When you went back to Toronto, you must have been the hero. Who goes to high school with someone playing for the Canadian Olympic baseball team? So contrast that with how you were treated back in your own school in your neighborhood. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, everything happened so fast. So all my friends knew I loved baseball, and I always wanted to be a Toronto Blue Jay, obviously. And I mean, because that's all I, I mean. I wore. I think I wore a baseball uniform to school. That's what I felt like. I mean, it was just crazy. It's pretty good. <laughs> so when I when I left for when I left for the summer to do the tryout for the junior national team, I expected that I could probably make that team um, because I was doing well at those tryouts. But there was no expectation that I would be gone for the whole summer and going to the Olympics. So my brother, who was only in he he was in grade nine, he was actually in D. A. Morrison. Um, he said over the announcements when I played in the Olympics, they announced that day, our first day playing, that you know. Uh, Rob Butler, a former student here, is playing the Olympics. And then my girlfriend at the time said they did the same thing at Easter Collegiate, which was nobody knew, right? Because I, wow. once you go away for the summer, you're gone. Like, nobody knows <laughs> yeah. what's going on with you in your life. <laughs> yeah. So I remember, I, I, and the Olympics that year dragged into the school year. So this was like late September. Uh, we were playing the Olympics in Seoul, Korea that year in 88. And that's when Ben Johnson got caught. So everybody can kind of refer to when that, what, what Olympics that was. Um, so the school year was on. So everybody was saying, because when I came back, because, you know, you had to make collect calls home back in those days. There's no cell phones. You know? and, and then you had to find a phone in the Olympic Village, which was very hard to find. And there's usually yeah. some other person from another world on the phone from the from Germany or, or, or Russia was talking on the phone. So you could never get on a phone. Yeah. So finally, when I finally was able to call my parents, and it was probably, I didn't even recognize the time change either. My mom and my dad were like, it's three o'clock in the morning, man. I'm like, yeah, but I'm in the Olympics. Like, you seriously, I can, I can call you. I'm like, yeah, of course, of course. Like, what's happening? So I was like, what's going on? Like, what's going on at home? And they're like, well, you know, I don't know. I think anybody even knows you're there. <laughs> so and I was like, what? Really? And then my dad's like, no, no, we're just joking. Everybody knows you're there and they're happy and they're proud. So go show the world that you can play baseball. So, anyways, <laughs> um, I do come home. Uh, it was interesting that year I was supposed to come back home and finish my high school and get my diploma. I actually wasn't a terrible student, but I was definitely going to graduate. I had to get my OACs. I think I had to get like four more OACs back in those days. Yeah. And so I came back like first week of October. I'd already missed a month of school. But the problem was the junior world championships in Australia were coming and I had to leave uh, second week of second week of November to go to Australia for six weeks to play the junior world championships. 
so I went, I went back to East, I went back to my high school and a couple of teachers there were going to basically help me pass. I was going to miss most of the year. Right. Um, because I was doing that I was for sure right up until Christmas. I was not going to spend one day of high school in school because I also had to train. I had to be doing my training. So they were going to help me. Um, and there was kind of like, um, I don't know, it was, it was so fast and so busy. There was not, there was, there wasn't this like come back and there's this heroes kind of thing. It was kind of deadpan and a little bit flat for me. And I never really, under, I never really understood that. And it, I guess just because I was gone again so quickly, you know, yeah. there, there was no realization of what was like, everything was just happening so fast. I came home from the Olympics, tried to set up my school year. I ended up going back to, I ended up going back to travel, went to Australia, which was now going to be like, I think my fourth continent in four months or three months of my life, like. I'd never left really East York except to go to Butlerville, Newfoundland. And now I'm actually in like four different continents playing baseball, which was insane. Um, it's amazing. Oh, I- <laughs> you, went, you went to school and you show up for school and uh, you say, uh, hey, Ted, what did you do for your summer? Well, I, I went to Wonderland and, uh, you know, I uh, hang out at my uh, cousins a little. What did you do, Rob? I went to four continents, <laughs> Netherlands. I, I went to Korea. And then I'm going to Australia. I mean, what a change in your life. What an amazing year in your life. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. Yeah, because I was in Asia, I was in Europe, uh, I was in North America, obviously, and then I went to Australia. And then later, I would go to South America to play after. So I've seen a lot of the world with my baseball. But they were all kind of like, it was definitely, I don't know, it was, it was funny. It was funny because I don't think they knew what to make of it. Nobody really knew what to make of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being Canadian, like Canadians don't get really raw, raw, and crazy, crazy about things anyways. So no one really knew what to make of me because it came it came out of really nowhere. It really did. Like it was suddenly like I was burst into this and got this amazing experience. And you know, it wasn't until I I would say I really became a pro that people actually wanted to know what the heck actually happened. You know, when I once I got to the Blue Jays, people were like, "Wow, you went to the Olympics? Like, what was that like?" There was never so, any kind of like anything going on about it. Well, I do. We are going to transition to your your pro career, starting with the Blue Jays. But I did have one question for you about Seoul, Korea, the Olympics, Ben Johnson. Uh, would you have all walked in as one big team opening ceremonies? I guess he wasn't there for the closing. Did you have any interaction with him? What was the vibe? What do you recall about that time? Because that's a very uh, celebrated, if not the right word, Olympics because of the whole Ben Johnson thing. What do you remember about that whole experience? Uh Oh, I remember so much about the Olympics. Uh, it was uh, it was actually incredible um, because all the Olympians hang out together. You're in that Olympic village and you're with everybody, right? The whole world of Olympians is there together. And the Canada building was, it was amazing. Like we were hanging out with all the track stars. Um, oh God, I can't remember half of their names now, but we we interacted literally with everybody. It was such a tight little like Canadian family. We all ate together. We hung out together. Um you know, we were sharing all of our stories about who we were and where we came from. I remember Helen Kelsey, the tennis player, was always at our, at like, in our condo hanging out with us. It was like a big building with all these condos inside, so everybody was together. Um, and it, it was just a great experience seeing these people that some of them I had seen before in the Olympics prior and was seeing them, like, in live person. And they were kind of like my celebrities that I had seen for the first time. So it was so cool to see Oh my God, I wish I could remember their names. They were so, they were so good to us. But I do remember Helen Kelsey and uh, some of the- How surreal is that? You're watching them on TV and then across the breakfast table from you, they're now sitting. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty surreal. It was kind of like, I, I, we played a high school championship game at Exhibition Stadium back when I was in grade 10. And it, they were, the Blue Jays were playing the Minnesota Twins and I, I will never forget this. So it was like kind of my, my first surreal experience was seeing like professional athletes and amazing people you see on TV. 
and all your idols. So um, we're playing this high school game. I'm in grade 10. We're playing this like great, like back then you 21 year olds could play like sports in high school. <laughs> so I was 15 playing as 21 year old, which was, which was funny. And so we're the game. So this, they changed the whole rules because our game went into extra innings and extended into the Minnesota twins and blue Jays batting practice. Okay. And then even into where they're missing their whole pregame. And they're now watching our game. So Blue Jays and Minnesota Twins are in our dugouts. I can still remember seeing Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck, Dan Gladden, uh, all these guys. And then I went, I ran into the Blue Jays dugout because I wanted to meet Garth Orge and Rance Mullenix and George Bell. And I remember, I, I, I'll never forget, like seeing Jesse Barfield and all, like all of my unbelievable heroes as a kid. And I'm high-fiving them, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, what ends up happening is I get called in the game to pitch. And I was no longer really a pitcher anymore. But the mm. game went so far into into the in, went so long. All of our normal pitchers are done. Our grade thirteens or whatever are done. So I'm on the mound. There's now about fifteen thousand people in Exhibition Stadium, filling like filing in to watch the Blue Jays game. Blue Jays are watching. Minnesota Twins are watching. I got pimples all over my face. I'm standing on the mound, going, "Holy cow! I'm on Exhibition Stadium's pitching mound." Garth Orge is looking at me, and it was like the most crazy, surreal first experience I had with professionals and just how much my head blew up and how I just wanted to be a major leaguer so bad because the smell of that turf and the clay and I could smell the I could smell the um, pine tar and all it's just like smells that never leave you right when you when you just love something so much you know that kind of that feeling gets in like I still smell it so anyways when I got to the Olympics and I got to meet all the all the Olympians that I was seeing on TV and that hanging out and having like my eggs and my bacon and I'm like oh my like what is going on in my life I was like it was incredible, and it definitely inspired me to want to do well, even even better for Canada, and how important it was to represent Canada, and how how much fun it was, and the energy, and the love, and that and that like family feeling that you get when you're doing something like that. It's incredible. It's amazing how vivid your recollections are. It would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you, Rob, how'd you end up pitching on that mound, Exhibition Stadium with the Twins and the Blue Jays watching you? Do you even remember what you did? Were you able to reach the plate without it bouncing? I remember, I remember the whole thing, actually. I actually didn't do too bad. We, when I came into the game, we were winning seven, six. Um, And then my team decided to not play well uh, behind me. I still remember the second baseman. I won't say his name because I know he probably to this day just can't believe this ever happened. Uh, we were still winning seven six. He got a ground ball. There's runners on, runners on uh, runner on third base, and he threw the ball into the second row in the stands, and they tied the game up. So that's what actually pushed it into extra innings. Okay. So uh, we play we play the extra inning. The game is still tied. Uh, I get to two outs, and there's a little pop fly between the right fielder, first baseman, and second baseman, and it dropped, and that's how we mm-hmm. end up losing. And it was funny because the starting pitcher of the game was a guy named Alan Butler who played some minor league baseball with the Blue Jays. He was a super, the original superstar in East York, someone that I idolized as a kid because um, we had the same name. We weren't related, but we grew up in East York together. And he's a good, and he's a good friend of mine, a great, a great high school teammate. And so he came out of the game and I replaced him. So the, the funny thing was, and I still, have this, I still have the newspaper article, it actually said Alan Butler starts the game, but the other Butler didn't do it. East York loses 8-7. <laughs> The butler didn't. I was referred to as the other butler. Yeah, and what a great headline. They don't do those kind of headlines anymore. No, no, that would definitely not go over well for a kid nowadays. <laughs> um, but you know what? It was, it was, it, that was a fun game. I mean, it was fun. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget playing at Exhibition Stadium and all the major league baseball players I got to meet. I mean, Kirby oh. Puckett was always a, like 
everybody loved Kirby Puckett. Yeah. I actually got to shake his hand and like kind of look at him. He's like my height, right? So I was yeah, like, yeah. Wow, major leaguers, like, <laughs> my height, that's weird. I thought they'd all be seven feet tall. Yeah. So anyway, that, it was a good experience. You, uh, you had many great experiences. Let's move ahead. September 24th, 1990, you sign with your hometown Toronto Blue Jays as an amateur free agent. But we're going to move ahead to another special experience. June 12th, 1993, at the age of 23, what do you remember about your major league debut? You went one for four against the Detroit Tigers. How vivid is that memory, Rob, of your first uh, game in the majors? Uh, well, the, the whole thing started actually the night before when I got called up. We were in Syracuse playing a doubleheader, and uh, I, was, I was hitting really well. I was probably, probably back on 3.30 or something like that. It was, I was having a really good start to the year. No expectation that I'd be called to the big leagues because, you know, even though I was in AAA, I had only been in AAA. I, I was only in A-ball the year before, so I'd skipped double-A and went straight to AAA. And we're only, you know, whatever, June, June's probably a month and a half into the season, so no expectation that I'd be called up. Nick Leva was the manager. He says, Rob, you're going to sit out the second game of the doubleheader. We're going to give you the second game off, and which was weird because, you know, I thought I'd be playing every every game. I, I thought I'd play every game. But. Yeah. So he says, yeah, just go coach first base and, you know, take the night off, take the rest of the night off and just enjoy it, uh, whatever. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So probably around the, the third inning, all of a sudden there's this roar in the crowd. And on the scoreboard, it says, congratulations, Rob Butler. You've been called up to the Toronto Blue Jays. Wow. Which is not the way you're supposed to be called up. You're not supposed to call it up this way. Uh, so I'm like, I'm looking around, like, what's the standing ovation about? Like, it's like Syracuse probably has 2,400 people, and, but not not a big crowd ever. And I'm like, wow, something's going on. Somebody's happy. Anyway, I look over the scoreboard, and I see my name. Like, oh, my God, I thought I was going to Toronto Blue Jays. Wow. I look, I look into the dugout, and all my teammates are clapping, blah, 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 because we were like, when you're a professional baseball player, you are really tight. I mean, he's yeah. Nick Leva is not clapping. He is looking at the guy in the scoreboard screaming. No one can hear him, but he's pointing and swearing and how dare you? Like, because the tradition for a hundred years was the manager tells you. Oh like, yeah. Game ends, you go into the clubhouse, you get a tap on the shoulder, a butts manager wants to see you. So that's the normal way of doing things. I find out from the scoreboard. So anyways, the game, I, I end up, I, I actually walk off the field because I, I'm total shock. I, I walk into the clubhouse. I can still remember calling my mom and dad. My dad was on the phone. He's crying. He's like, oh, my God, we've all heard you going to the major leagues. I had no, no I start crying. And my dad's crying. Like, when, yeah. when did you see your dad cry? Or hear, hear your dad cry, who I hadn't yeah. really seen much for the last, I don't know, three years of my life that I was playing baseball so much. Nick Leva comes in, and he's livid. He's like, Rob, I'm sorry. This should never happen this way. I'm supposed to be the one to tell you. I was like, Nick, I don't care, man. I'm going to the major leagues. So, yeah. <laughs> It's what a st- so I end up in Detroit, Detroit, Tiger Stadium. And it's funny, um, Tiger Stadium's visiting clubhouse was, is, even though it's a major league clubhouse, it's not up to standards. I mean, I remember sitting on a milk carton. They had milk cartons for some chairs. They had regular chairs, but I remember sitting on a milk carton in the clubhouse. And it was very small. And the funny thing about the major leagues, and they didn't prepare you for this, like the routines are so different. So in the minor leagues, you never miss infield, outfield, which is every single day. You never miss batting practice, which is every single day. You never miss the national anthem, which is every single game. The major leagues, it's like totally opposite. It's like nobody does. Like I was like, what the hell? Nobody's doing anything here. I had no idea of time. I had no idea of routine. Yeah. I thought we were going to be in Philadelphia. Like, oh, no, we don't do it in Philadelphia. We're in the major leagues now, man. Like, get, get a grip. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So I'm sitting on the milk carton. I actually missed part of the national. I, all, everything that normally happens for me did not happen. I, I was totally out of sync, out of routine. I ran out quickly with five minutes to go before I think like the game started around seven o'clock. 
and got my few jogs in, but I was way out of sync. Um, my mom and dad drove, my girlfriend drove from, from Toronto to see me. A couple of my friends came. The stadium had 48,000 people in it. It was so jammed, so many Canadian flags around. Uh, I remember running out to left field, uh, which is interesting because I remember doing this. I remember looking up at the, at the big bowl of Tiger Stadium and like all these Canadian flags were waving and blah, blah, blah. And I remember tipping my hat to the crowd and I got a big, big like from the Canadian people. And a guy I met like 10 years later was there and he said, Rob, I remember you tipping your cap, which actually made me cry. It was funny because I was like, it was such a personal experience. Yes. And I didn't think I'd see someone that actually experienced it too and say, oh, it was, it was so amazing because I know, I mean, I was from Toronto and I was, you know, I was one of the, I think I was still only the only guy from Toronto at that time who'd, who'd made it to Toronto Blue Jays. It's so it, it was incredible to, to feel those feelings and to be in a packed stadium and playing against, um, I mean, all the great Tigers. Jack Morris was there. God, it, um, oh my God, I can't remember. I remember having a brain cramp. God, I'm so excited to talk about it. Yeah. Kirk Gibson, Kirk Gibson, all those guys. Anyways, it was such a different kind of feeling. I was very, I was unbelievably nervous. Like I couldn't even move. My feet wouldn't even move. It was, it was so odd. Cecil Fielder was there because Cecil Fielder was the first ball where I actually caught an outfield ball. Yeah. I did make two errors in the game, and Pat Borders asked me if I intended on breaking the outfield record for most <laughs> errors in a season because I was on my way after. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I, yeah, I, I, tripped over, I, I tripped over the bullpen pitching mound because it was on the field. So the, the bullpens were on the field in Tiger Stadium, and I was racing for a fly ball, tripped over the mound, fell, fell on the pitching mound, which was a great experience in front of 48,000 people. <laughs> I made two errors in the game, a throwing error, not, not a catching error, but uh, two throwing errors. Um, so Pat Borders was making fun of me. The first ball that was hit to me was by Cecil Fielder. And I can still remember having that Les Nessman moment of, oh my God, like from WKRP when they had that softball game, the ball, I literally put my hand up and like prayed it would go in. His ball, his ball went higher than the stadium, which I never experienced before. It literally went into space. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing really near the warning track because Devon, Devon White said, right, you got to play, play the warning track with Cecil. Every ball goes to the fence. Thank God he told me that. So I was literally in the right spot. didn't have to move very far because I couldn't. There's no way I could. I could. I've already tripped over the mound. I've already made an error. And then Cecil hits me this massive sky ball that I somehow, I don't even know how I caught it. I kind of just put my hand up and boom, it went in my glove. I guess my peripheral vision was good that night. That's, that was that's my very amazing. first match in the major leagues. And I was very happy about that because I wasn't successful. <laughs> I wasn't having the greatest success before that. So I, and I do remember, I have a picture of my first major league at bat. It happened at 7.35 and Devon White's on deck and you can still see the crowd and that whole feeling of being there and not being able really to breathe and catch your breath. And, you yeah. know, John Allerwood saying, you know, this is only day one. It took me three years to relax. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have three years. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets three years to prepare? So anyways, I was like, it was just the most nerve-wracking thing. And I remember seeing Alan Trammell at third base. He was playing me always close. I, was a, I could bunt. I always, I always like to get bunt base hits. And Lou Whitaker was like, it was, it was such a crazy, surreal feeling. And I was 0 for 3. And I was like, I got to get a hit. I, I, I got to hit. I got to get a hit, hit my, first, my first game. Otherwise, I may never get a hit. I, may never be, I might not be here for day two. So okay. I'm facing Tom Bolton. It's a lefty. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in the major leagues facing a lefty. I'm a left-handed hitter. <laughs> But I thought for sure I'd be pinch hit for him. But Cito's like, no, you're you're here, man. You're a starter. You're playing. You got to hit lefties. Nice. So I ended up hitting a high. I ended up hitting a high chopper that ended up uh, to Alan Trammell. And I remember running to first base faster than Ben Johnson. Could I get like, <laughs> yes. my first major league? I would have. I would have won the hundred meter race in the Olympics. If that was that day. I'm telling you. Yeah. First. And I remember standing at first base and. 
oh my god it was it was amazing the umpire came up to me and said way to go rook um wow when they first hit alan trammell didn't throw the ball at first he, he grabbed it he shook the ball to to me got made eye contact shook the ball and threw the ball into the dugout because that was my first major league hit and it's just wow. how, how everybody kind of like because they've all had that right they've all yeah. had that they all had their first major league hit and the way they treat you, the way everybody treats you is, is amazing. You get the second, get the second base and they're all like congratulating me. Way to go. Good luck on your career. And it was amazing. And Sparky Anderson was their manager and I wore my high socks. So I had high socks. I was one of the only players who wore high socks. Yes. Because of a crazy superstition that me and my brother got when we were in the minor leagues. Um, I was wearing my high socks and everybody was laughing at like back then they kind of like, it, didn't, it, it was different. So it didn't look like everybody wore their pants under their shoes back in those days. And yeah. All like fashion and style. Whereas we, you know, me and Rich, when we were in the minors, we wanted to be Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. So we wanted to wear our pants <laughs> and socks the way they did. Old school. Old school. So Sparky Anderson also wore his high socks and he came over to me the next day in batting practice and he said, butts, man, I got a lot of, it takes a lot of courage, man, to wear high socks in this game. I guarantee you, you're not doing too well right now. I said, buddy, I haven't been more ridiculed and made fun of in my life. Like, 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 what, like, what is this? He said, they don't do that anymore. But everybody cares what they look like. They don't care about how they play. So he said, don't change. For me, do not change. Wow. So I said, Arky, you got no worries, man. I will never change. I will always wear my high socks. So anyway. Your personal promise to Sparky yeah. Anderson. This, this that was is, my first, first game in the big leagues. It was great. This is incredible. I mean. And we still haven't reached what many would consider your, your personal pinnacle. 1993, the Blue Jays walked it back, as they say, after their big first World Series win in 92. 1993, you're with the team in the World Series. You hit 500, two at-bats. You had a hit. You had a run scored. What do you remember about the 1993 World Series championship? Uh it's funny how I can remember everything in baseball, but when it comes to my wife, I, she always said I can't remember anything, but I can remember <laughs> things from 30 years ago. <laughs> I, I won't put you on the spot and ask your anniversary. We'll, we'll leave that for another time. But you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're pin- there's no way I can forget it. It's right there in front of me. I'll never forget it. There it is right there. Your um, pinch hit single was off Kurt Schilling. Yep. It was off Kurt Schilling. I, I really didn't, I really didn't expect to be playing in the world series because in my 11th game, in the big leagues, I tore the ligament in my thumb, sliding head first in the second against New York Yankees. I remember getting a hit. Um, Perez was the pitcher. I remember getting hit up the middle, and I was standing at first base with Don Mattingly. And Don Mattingly was a, a poster on my wall that I had, and I imitated him as a kid when I was doing wall ball, and I, I wanted to be Don Mattingly so bad. And I'm standing with Don Mattingly at first base, and I actually turned to him and said, Don, I, I have your poster on my wall. Still, like, still there. Like, you yeah. are my hero. And he was like, hey, great swing, good, good swing, man. Keep going, keep doing it. I'm like, yeah, wow. watch this. I'm going to steal second here. So <laughs> you I, didn't say that. So I, I did. So I steal, I steal second. I get thrown out, and I tear the ligament in my thumb. And I'm on the TL for the next 60 days because I have to go get surgery the next day. And I'm thinking my major, major league career just ended after 10 games. Um, showing off for Don Mattingly. Got to, got, <laughs> showing off for Don Mattingly. That, that Bob Baylor could verify all of this because he's always at first base and he, and he remembers everything. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, so I'm injured. So I miss, I actually miss uh, from June 20 something till August when I can go back and do a rehab stint in Syracuse. But I'm just trying, hopefully, to get them to call me back up in for, as, uh, for September 1st. So I do my rehab stint in Syracuse. I get back to where I can actually swing the bat. Um, I was still, still kind of injured. My thumb has never really been the same since then. Mm. 
So I didn't think, I didn't think I'd be playing. Like, I didn't think it would happen. So anyways, they get me, I, I finished my rehab. I come back to the Jays for September. Um, I don't play like none of the scrubs play none of the bench guys, scrubs, whatever you want to call them. Me, Dick Schofield, Darnell Colts, Turner Ward. We, we don't, we we're not, we're not playing. We got to get together, win the division. So all the main guys are playing. We end up winning the division in Milwaukee. I get a chance to play. All of us get a chance to play. All the guys are normally winning, so we can get you know the, the, the main guys rest. So I'm doing pretty good. I got probably you know eight or se- seven or eight hits over the course of the rest of the season between Milwaukee and Baltimore. And so I, I know they had to do their their uh, World Series roster. So Cito Gaston calls me and Dick Schofield in, and I'm thinking Dick Schofield is going to be playing in the World Series, and I'm not. Like, there's no mm-hmm. chance I am. I've only played. 40, 30 games this year. I don't even know what it was. So anyways, he said, you guys are on the World Series roster. And I was like, what? I'm on the World Series roster? <laughs> wow. How is that impossible? So anyways, he says, yeah, you're on the roster. You're left-handed hitter. You're fast. And well, you, you can bring some value to what we need. So me and Dick, Dick Scope would end up leaving, high-fiving each other, hugging each other. Dick, Dick and Turner Ward actually became like really close, close friends of mine um, when I was with the Blue Jays. Those guys were just amazing to me and helped me so much. So um, as it turned out, I got to play. Uh, I didn't play in the first series against the Chicago White Sox. We, uh, d- there was a DH for the whole series. So Cito pretty much had all of his nine guys who never got hurt and were it was a nine, all, nine, nine guy all-star team on the Toronto Blue Jays. I mean, how, who could crack that lineup? Yeah. Ricky Henderson, Devo, Joe, John, Oliver, Ed Sprague. I mean, it was Tony Fernandez. It was incredible. Like the team was amazing. So it was funny though. I still remember before game six, I'm doing my outfield, which, uh, you know, I'm always over anxious when I'm doing my, my pregame training and taking fly balls off the bat during batting practice. Um, Dave Stewart is walking out to talk to um, Cisco, Galen Cisco. I think Pat Hankin was there. So I'm doing my outfield work. I'm just like racing to cut off balls and throw them back in the infield. So anyways, I race to cut off a ball. I throw a ball back and I hit Dave Stewart right between, right between the shoulder plates. Yikes. It was a pitch in, in, in game six. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And of all the people that hit Dave Stewart. Well, he's such a good-natured, easygoing guy. Such a good-natured, easygoing guy who could, like, literally punch you to the next planet. Like, he's uh, unbelievable how <laughs> like how menacingly scary he is when he's in baseball mode. Yeah. Baseball mode, the nicest, sweetest man ever. He actually – so when I got to the major leagues, I had my, my minor league baseball shoes on. You don't get – baseball shoes when you're in the minor leagues you basically you you get a pair and you make it last the whole season so my 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 shoes had holes in them when i got to the big leagues i'm in wow. going back to the locker room tiger stadium now for a sec dave stewart takes one look at me and he goes that's those shoes ain't gonna work in the major leagues man and i'm looking down at my shoes and like there's like rips in the side and it's like old bowers that the blue jays gave us it was like there's no contracts for me i was in the minor leaguer Anyways, he says, that's not going to work, man. We're going to have to do something about that. And it didn't dawn on me that the next day I'd have two pairs of brand new ponies, his, his spikes that he wore, in my locker. Nice. Like, I actually love Dave Stewart for that because no one really ever – no one ever gave me anything. You know what I mean? You just kind of slug yeah. it out on your own, even as a minor leaguer. Like, there's no money or nothing going around. You share bats, and it's all different. So, anyways, he gave me my first pair of spikes, which I tell everybody how much I love this man for even just doing that for me. Yeah, and he put my arm around me, and like he's a huge, like he's gigantic. Like I felt like I was enveloped by this, like this massive. I don't, I don't even know how to explain him. Like, yeah. him strong. So, <laughs> anyways, I, I felt, I felt so good about that. That I was, that they accepted me and were so good to me when I was a teammate. It was good. It's so, it's so fraternal. All your stories jump out. The the brotherhood, 
And it's such a contrast to, you know, your initial story about the way you were treated when you went out to the, to the national camp. And then, but once you're kind of on the inside, so to speak, and you've shown your, your bona fides, as they say, the, the, the fraternal bond and the way you treat each other really jumps out. It does. Yeah. No, that's, that's what it, that's what it's all about. That's why when players retire, I mean, the first words other than most is I'm going to miss the guys, right? They never really say I'm going to miss baseball. I'm going to miss, you know, whatever. It's always the guys. That's, that's, that's the greatest bond, man, is playing on a team that, you know, where we're all raised the same way in the sporting environment that your teammates come first. And when you get to like the highest levels, it really comes out. Like it's so important to, to be a good teammate and be there and, because you never know what's going to happen. You have to be there to support each other. Well, um, you know. So I, anyway, so I get to the yep. World Series. Yep. We get to the we get to the World Series. Uh, we get to we're going to we're in Philadelphia. It's raining every day there. It's funny. We get to Philadelphia and and we're on our way to the hotel. And as we're on our way to the hotel, we find out that we don't have a hotel. We oh. end up having to go stay in Kosho Hawken, I think is what it's called. Um, like like our our hotel reservation got deleted. Like we are we okay. <laughs> like. Can I can I sound the conspiracy alert bell? Is this is this is this a conspiracy? Yeah, we ended up staying in Koshahawken, out out closer to the turnpike, which was pretty far from the stadium. Uh, totally done on purpose. Like we were in the middle of nowhere, so um, which made it funny and interesting. And other stories came out. Like they were making up stories with the players and you know things that were going on. And meanwhile, we're all having dinner together, hanging out and like being a family. And we're like, what? None of this is even happening. What are you Philadelphia people talking about? Yeah. So, anyways. Um, it was rain. It was rainy. All the games were a little bit kind of delayed and they were going on late at night because um, of the rain. So it came around to game three. We were winning. Uh, we were winning by a lot in that game. Uh, Pat Hankin pitched that game and I got on deck and it was shocking because Gene Tennis came down because we had to pinch hit for the pitchers um, in the National League, which I yeah. also, which I also hadn't been a part of because I was always a, a Toronto Blue Jay and we always used a DH. I had no idea pinch hitting for pitchers and all this stuff going on. The double so switch. I got my, I got, yeah, the double switches, which was very foreign to all of us, right? We didn't even, I don't even think Cito Gasson understood the rules. He was like, what, double switch, what's that? <laughs> so um, I, I, got, I got my coat on because it's cold. I got my batting gloves on. I'm just sitting there, and, you know, I got my bat in my hand because, you know, we're, and I'm just talking to Dick Schofield and we're all together. And Gene Tennis comes down and says, Butler, you're hitting. And I was like, Butler, I'm hitting. I go, wow. Well, Dar- Darnell's right here. Dick's right here. Guys have got 10 years in the big league. I'm hitting. Yeah. I bust out of my jacket. I go up on deck and the stadium's got set. Like the old veteran stadium has, it's a bowl and it's huge. And like 70,000 people are there. It is packed to the raft. It's so tight. And I can just remember kind of looking around and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go up and try and hit here. And I'm not at all mentally prepared because I didn't think I was going to pinch hit. So anyways, Lenny Dykstra ends up making a diving catch to end the inning. I ended up not pinch hitting that game, mm. which was a huge relief because, but it helped me so much because the next time when it comes around to, to game four, I'm more mm. mentally ready. I'm like, uh-huh. looking around and actually aware of what the coach may be coming at any time. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the game. That was the 15, 14 game. So we, uh, we score three runs in the first They score three runs. Todd Stoudemire slides on his face and burns his chin off. Yes. And so we know something could happen. So now I'm like, I'm like more like totally ready. And like that. Gene Tennis, I can see him. I can see him get up. So I was walking towards the, the, the guys who could pinch it. But you're hitting. Nice. Oh, I'm out of my jacket again. This time I am ready. I got you're locked in. I'm on deck. I'm locked in. 
Uh, I, 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 I'm totally feeling it. I, this time I do not look at the crowd. I make sure because we were always like talk. Don't don't look at the crowd too much. You yeah. can feel that pressure and that vibe of too many eyes on you. So I was like, good. So I'm just like focusing on the pitcher, doing my timing. Blah, blah. And I, I actually got on base on the fielder's choice. Um, I did end up coming around and scoring the seventh run of that game. And yes. I remember Jack Morris in the dugout saying the first team that scores 15 is going to win this game. And this was when it was like 3-3, three, 4-3. Three, three. He said yeah. that. It was like, it was crazy. It ended up being 15 because I still remember the club was going, how did you, how did you know that was going to happen? <laughs> but then we realized he'd been like three World Series in a row. So for sure, he could foreshadow what was going to happen. He knew. <laughs> so yeah, that was my first experience hitting, which was, I, I mean, on the board, they announced, you know, Rob Butler was the sixth, I think sixth Canadian to appear in the World Series. It was, it was like, it was a very rare thing. Like it was, yes. but not really like something that I ever would focus, like ever focused on or anything like that. Like I didn't, I mean, I didn't, but it was definitely a rare thing. And, you know, not many people um, in Canada or for, for that fact in Toronto got to experience that. And so I felt, I mean, ultimately it comes down to like Cito Gaston and Pat Gillick deciding who they're going to put on the roster. And the only reason why I got to play was because of them, you know? So I'm so, you're ever thankful for the opportunities that you get and that you're in the right place at the right time. And, you know, you're healthy and doing, doing what you want to do. And I was in the World Series and like, and it was crazy, actually. Like the energy was continuous. Like you, even when you went to sleep at night, you were still feeling like you're still playing. Like that energy never left, leaves yeah. your body, that whole series. Like that's how, that's why I find hockey is so hard. They, they have to keep that energy for so long. Like how, they, how they do it is incredible. The adrenaline rush. And then when it leaves you, you become limp and probably you, you can't even get up. But when no, the time exactly. when it's high energy, it's yeah, so yeah, like you flop down and you're just like your body just gives up once it's over. Um, but it was also interesting too because when they brought they brought in Mitch Williams and I can still remember the guys huddling together in that game saying how happy they were that he was coming in and I was like this guy throws like 95 miles an hour from the left side he's got 45 saves these guys are happy that he's pitching. What are like, you so happy <laughs> about? We ended up scoring six runs in that last in that eighth inning or whatever it was and they were like so prepared and so ready to like to I don't know it's just amazing to watch guys who are that good to be that confident, you know? Yeah. So then game five, game five we win that game 15-14. Nobody saw, nobody saw the end. Everybody went to bed because it ended up end going right to like 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. Um, everybody was shocked to see it was 15-14 in the newspaper the next day. Yes. My dad even called me and said, you guys won. He called the hotel and was like, yeah, we did. Where were you, where were you man? Oh, man, I was in bed. What do you think? So uh, I thought you guys had blown it. I was like, no, dad. You never, never, never underestimate the Toronto Blue Jays. Back True. So, um, so when then Gay Five rolled around, Kurt Schilling was pitching uh, unbelievable. Like he shut shut us right down. Nobody could hit him. He was throwing hard. He had his he had his little his little fork ball that he throws working. No one could touch him. So end up it was two nothing in the eighth inning, and uh, I had I, I was pinch hitting for who pitching in some that game. Was it Juan Guzman? Juan Guzman. Yeah, Guzzi. Guzzi was pitching. So I ended up pinching. Uh, Pat Borders got on. Uh, Willie Cagnante is running for him at first base. I'm pinch hitting for Juan Guzman. And Pat Kurt Schilling is just nasty, throwing everything under the sun. I'm swinging at everything. I've, my brother actually posted on YouTube my at-bat in the World Series. And I'm literally swinging at every pitch. I think it was like an eight-pitch at-bat. And I swung at pitches over my head. I, I swear one of them even bounced. And then the announcer says, oh, something's like, there was a, like a thing where he kind of hinted that something was about to happen. Anyways, do a fastball. I kind of got enough on it and I was able to punch it, hit through the right side. And I remember standing at first pace and John Cruck, John Cruck was standing there and I, and I look, I'm actually talking to Bob Baylor. I'm like, buddy, I just got to hit. I, 
I'm in the World Series. I gotta hit the World Series. Like my eyeballs are like they're like bigger than my head. And he's like, Rob, you gotta calm down, calm down. John Cook's like, calm down. This guy doesn't need to calm down. I can't believe I'm still alive, buddy. You're so lucky. You gotta hit in the World Series. He's talking like, buddy. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. You know what? You're right. I need to calm down here. It's. I remember. I think. I thank my grandmother in heaven. I have. I always felt that like my grandmother, um, who's a Mo- Mohawk from Kahnawake in Quebec, was always my guardian angel. And every time I got a hit, any time in Pro Bowl, I always thank, thank my grandma. Yeah. Because whenever I need to pray for something, I always prayed to her. And, you know, I remember praying that I'd be a major leaguer, and it came true. So I'm convinced that she was up there with the baseball god saying, my grandson's going to be a major league baseball player. Yes. So, um, and it was that native, that First Nation thing, that whole spirit. It's like, because, you know, even though my, my grandmother died in 1953, so we missed all of that, you know, heritage and culture of the Mohawks and, you know, where we even came from in Kahnawake because my, when my, my mom was only two years old when she died. And my grandfather was terrified that if, kids, if people knew that his three kids were half First Nation, that they would struggle in life. So they kind of kept it on the down low for a long okay. time. So anyways, um, I always carried my grandmother's death certificate in my, in my wallet from the time I can remember. My mom showed it to me and I kept it forever. She probably gave me like 10 years old. And so I always had this strong connection to, my, to our Mohawk heritage. And my brother's like, like really big. Like we want to go to Kahnawake and see them. So anyways, I remember praying, saying thank you to her like I always did. And getting, getting, uh, we didn't end up scoring in that game. We lost two nothing, but I got a hit. It was the greatest feeling that I think I've ever had. It is the greatest hit I felt like I've ever felt in my life. I've never felt anything like that. I contributed to the Toronto Blue Jays yes. uh, in the World Series, which is amazing because you come back and you're getting the high fives and the hugs. And, you know, even though we still lost, we were still like also happy for each other. Yeah. Because these guys felt like we were going to win. Like they just, they just knew something good was going to happen. These guys were so incredible to play with. I've never felt anything like that in my life where it was – these, this, these 20, 25 guys were just so confident and so like in tune with each other. It's like a, an energy passing through all of us. It was amazing. It's amazing when you, when you get to experience that and feel that because it doesn't always happen. But that team definitely had that, definitely had that chemistry, that feeling of, you know, I hear some people on the radio talk, some of these broadcasts, there's no such thing as chemistry. And that's, that's because they never felt it. Like you got yep. to be there. You got you to gotta be in it, man. That's how you know this chemistry because you felt it. Such I a key ingredient and i was going to ask you with that team having won the year before i wondered was there more pressure to repeat or was the pressure off kind of hey been there done that we can do this again i think i think that um because i know for me as a fan like i was in a ball in 92 and like the biggest blue jay fan like i took days off school to watch spring training games when i was a kid and <laughs> yeah i think that i think that that pressure of finally winning because they were so close all the time they were breaking our hearts year after year because they were so good and so close um, it definitely helped winning. It definitely did help the group to win. Dave Winfield being there in 92 and David Cohn kind of brought them over the top. So then when they got Paul Molitor and Dave Stewart coming this time, um, guys who were so hungry to win and then to go with the guys who had, had already experienced it, it definitely, it definitely made them feel like no matter what they were, they could win. Right. So it was definitely, uh, it definitely took the pressure off that they had done it before and they knew how to do it. Cause I knew they had to get over that hump of the Oakland A's back in 92 when they finally beat uh, Dennis yes Adams. yeah so all that was huge and they and you know they talked they, they talked about those things like we've done this before we've been here before like we can do this and me being like just a rookie and in total awe and like holy cow man like I, i'm i'm listening to roberto alomar and i'm listening to joe carter and you know devo is you know it was a great a great outfielding partner i remember devo telling me to catch all the balls that 
or foul because like, he's going to catch everything that lands fair. So I was like, wow, that's an easy job for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So Look I, at the uh, support. Your, your, all your themes, Rob. Resiliency, taking advantage of opportunities, teammates, working together. I mean, listen, t- time is our enemy. You've been yeah. so generous with yours. we got so much more to cover. I do not mean to rush through this at all, but I want you no. to have time at the end to talk about what you're up to. But why don't you just, if you, just to finish off this era, because everyone will be upset if we don't ask the question. Joe Carter walks up to the plate. Where are you? What are you thinking? What do you remember about that at bat? Uh, well, that was a very like slow motion surreal time when um, <clears throat> they brought Mitch Williams in, and I can still and, and they all huddled together again. Joe Carter, Ricky Henderson, they had this little game plan to mess with them a little bit, uh, which I obviously wasn't privy to. I just kind of saw them talking and mingling amongst themselves to figure out their game plan. So Ricky actually got into the box and then called time just as Mitch was about to throw that first pitch. Mm. And they had all had that planned out just to get in his head because they'd already beat him a couple times in the series. And it worked. Like, it was unbelievable. I was probably pretty close to Cito because they were kind of worried that we go to extra innings or something like some of the bench guys could be playing, like could be pinch running or whatever. So I was kind of like starting to shake like a leaf thinking, oh, my God, I could this, this now, now we're getting scary. This is getting yeah. scary time. Game six in the World Series in Toronto. I don't know, man. So <clears throat> I remember Ricky got on. He got on with the walk. Devo, I think, pop flew out. Uh, Paul Mulder hit that rope line drive up the middle. He could have probably tried to win the game himself, but nope. He, he does what he does best and hits that base hit. So it's now first and third. And, I mean, talk about having the right guy at the right time. Like, Joe Carter was always, like, the guy was just so clutch. He always was clutch. So for him, it wasn't, um, like, for me, I probably would have turned into butter and just melted, whereas he definitely was, like, totally into it. And, like, I'm not, I am, I'm the one who's going to win this for my team. Wow. Whether or not he's going to hit a home run, I don't know. But I know that the whole at bat, everything, everything slowed down. Like the crowd kind of got quieter. Like the, the bench was like, like everybody was like stationary, not moving, just kind of like totally like slowed right down to nothing. And <clears throat> I still, I can still, I can still see the swing. I can still see the ball go. I can still see the ball like take off. We didn't see it go over the fence because it was kind of in that corner down there. Yeah. But we kind of waited for his reaction. And as soon as he jumped, we all jumped. Like yeah. it was like it was like we were on trampolines. Like we were at the sky zone. Just like it was like <laughs> we could have slam dunked all day long. We were like ten feet off the ground, and it was it, it was incredible. Like it was totally unbelievable that that was happening. And Joe Carter hit a uh, home run that had only happened I think once before that ever in the history of the World Series. And to win it like that is just it's unbelievable. It's it's unbelievably special to win it on a walk off home run with your guy, your number four hitter at the plate, two strikes on him and the best reliever in the game at the time on the mound. Like it's, it's stuff like the natural. It's like the natural. It's a movie. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You, you wouldn't believe it if it hadn't happened right in front of you. And you'd be <laughs> exactly. part of it. Totally true, man. Like I wouldn't, <clears throat> I definitely would not have believed it if it hadn't happened when I was there. And That's I remember incredible. going to the stands after my mom, my dad and my brother were there. I saw them in the stands. We did our whole celebration on the field. And my, my dad, I went into the stands and my dad and my brother put me up on their shoulders with like CBC had a, had a little clip of it all. And I was like with the crowd doing the hands up thing. And it was like, it was just crazy. It was so amazing. Like I have a picture on my wall, actually, of my dad, my, my dad and my brother holding me on the show. I can see it right there. My, World Series yeah. my wife what put a, a montage of the pictures. It's amazing. It was incredible. What a fantastic memory. And do you, do you have your ring, Rob? Do you, uh, are you a jewelry wearer? 
No, I'm not. I'm definitely not a jewelry wearer. Um, I I kind of keep it for, and I let I let people wear it. I take it to place. I, I take to alumni events, and if people if there's like some sort of event celebrating the Blue Jays, I bring it, and people take pictures. I let all the kids in my camps put it on, and you know they hold the World Series trophy. I got a little mini trophy, and it's just a great thing to have to share an experience. You know what I mean? Then they ask questions because we don't have the ring. People are like ah, but when soon as you saw someone the ring. <laughs> It's like they go into a trance and they start <laughs> especially the parents are like, Oh my God. And you know, I let them wear it and it's, it's, it's just fun to have. I definitely, I definitely never wear it around. It's like, it's the most amazing trophy I've ever gotten. It's, it's an amazing piece of uh, memorabilia that as you note, it makes everything so real when they see it. Rob, mm-hmm. that's a nice tie in. What are you doing today? And talk a little about what you're up to. Cause as you mentioned, you are still very involved with baseball. Yeah, so I um, I definitely slowed down a little bit. I, I do my camps. I'm doing summer camps. I'm doing some camps up here in Oshawa at the Durham College Stadium. I'm doing a camp in Vaughan. Um, I've always done summer camps. I'm 22 years of summer camp now. And, you know, we've had kids who, who've gone on to do great things in baseball. And Tyler Black signed. He's a first-rounder last year. Signed, signed with the Milwaukee Brewers. We've had kids like that come through our camps. But most of all, it's just being still being still doing it, still throwing batting practice, still hitting ground balls teaching kids how to play the game the right way, coaching them. I coached for a long time and I'm helping a team in Lee side right now, a PB team, with lots of good players on it. And just trying to, trying to help them understand that the team comes first and you love baseball and you you fight for your teammate and you know, that you, you live, you, you live the game together. And, you know, that's what I try to, that's just what I try to pass on because that's what was passed to me. I, I just, I don't try to reinvent anything. I just, Want them to hustle on and off the field, play hard, play for your teammate, high five your teammate, be there for each other, and you know that's. I feel like that's been my job for the last twenty years. Just have fun lessons learned, sharing the lessons learned. Yeah. Much. Uh, when's the last time you were asked to join a uh, beer league uh, softball team in Toronto? I get asked to do that a lot, actually. People, I'll bet. Like, I'm, like, <laughs> I'll I'm bet. fifty. I'm fifty. I'm like I'm fifty, and I could still probably do it a little bit, but I, it's not the hitting that would worry me. It would be the running. I think I'd have to, it would be the pulling of the muscles running around the bases because it's actually not easy to do. You got to be in shape for that. So I'm like, you know yeah. what? If you, if, if someone would run for me, I will hit for you. There you go. <laughs> what a, what a great offer. Well, I can tell you if I, if I came up the pitch and I saw Rob Butler step into the batter's box, uh, I, I can't, uh, there's not good clean language to say what, what I would do at that point. It was great having you, Rob. Your stories are amazing. Your messages are amazing. Where can we best follow you and what you're up to with Sherry? And uh, are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? Please tell us where we can follow you. I have, I have a little website. It's called robbutlerprobaseball.com. And I'm on Instagram a little bit. I'm not, I'm not a great social media person. Like I don't have Facebook or, or anything like that. I try to, um, I try to do everything through, through more word of mouth. So robbutlerprobaseball.com is where I am also on, on Twitter, as where you can, on Instagram, sorry, you can find me there. Find about my camps. I mean, I really only post that kind of stuff, information about coming to the camps. Um, me and my wife, we're just busy raising our kids, raising our animals. And, you know, we got a nice little quiet little little neighborhood we live in. You know, lights are out at 830 in this neighborhood. So it's <laughs> it's just nice, man. I, I feel like I'm still the luckiest guy in the world. I got to live my dream. I, got, I grew up in Toronto, loving the Toronto Blue Jays. I got to play for the Toronto Blue Jays. My brother played for the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, we grew up together. We're best friends. We're still best friends. And, 
you know, I was so happy that he played in the major leagues and got a taste of it all. I, I think we're still the only brothers to ever play for the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm not so sure there's any other family members that have done it to this day. And, you know, we grew up 10 minutes from the Sky Dome. And, you know, we, we, my brother used to work at the exhibition stadium as a food vendor. He used to eat all the hot dogs and pops. We never made any money. Couldn't get back home. <laughs> so we are just so connected to baseball and the Toronto Blue Jays. Like, it's, it's been amazing, an amazing road and an amazing honor to ever have gotten to do it. Well, it's been an honor for me, and we really appreciate your time and your stories. I hope we can talk again soon. I wish you a great summer ahead. Thank you very much, Rob Butler. Yeah, and to the list, our pleasure. And to the listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Rob Butler, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.